Hey guys, welcome to Generation Dry. I'm Kayla. And I'm Leah. Let's jump in. Hi, how was your week? Hello there. Um, it's been a mixed bag. <laughs> what about you? It's been, uh, <laughs> it's been okay. Work was a little bit, it's work-wise a little stressful, but I made it and it's a new week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm happy to be here and I'm excited to talk about this topic because I feel like it's super applicable to lots of people and there are different takes on it but yeah can you kind of explain it because I I know we like talked about it before but I think it's a like you have like just to define it and so I just think that would be helpful because I think I have a different take on it absolutely so the idea behind hedonic adaptation, which some of our listeners may be familiar with the word hedonic because I've talked about our hedonic set point in the past when it comes to drinking alcohol or using other substances. Similarly, this theory, (laughs) I'm really loopy this morning. (laughs) Similarly, um, too much uh, this, uh, pinched nerve is getting to me. Anyways, the point is we are always searching for something. We're always goal setting. We're always on to the next. At least I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we being an I. Um, but I know some of our listeners feel this way too because when we put out the poll on Instagram, this was the feedback that we got. Basically, Hedonic adaptation is the theory that no matter what it is, no matter the length of time that you've been working towards something, let's say you're working towards your graduate degree, or you're working towards your doctorate, or you're working towards your promotion, or for me this past week, you know, working towards a big recovery milestone. Mm -hmm. It only takes a few days or maybe two weeks and you adapt quite quickly to the new lifestyle. So it's kind of the the same concept behind, I think the pink cloud Mm -hmm. for recovery, you know, everything's sunshiny and happy. Let's say like you become a doctor, right? Oh, Dr. Leah for the first time, like very exciting, very cool. You want to tell everybody about it. And then you're over it in like a week. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's lost its shine. So that's really the concept behind this is that we adapt so quickly to change, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but when we do that, we, you know, we miss out on the destination. And so, so many of us are, are so focused on meeting that end goal mm-hmm. and, you know, taking off that check mark because we think it's going to make us feel happier or more fulfilled or mm-hmm. more accomplished. And it does, but only for a very fleeting moment. And then we feel a little bit deflated or defeated and we immediately go on to the next thing because we're once again searching and, and really where we find that true happiness is almost in the hunt itself for the goal mm-hmm. that we're after. 
So just a, a really obvious example for me was hitting six years of recovery on Friday and feeling really good about it the day of, I was really excited about it the day before. And then the next day, you know, it's just kind of over your friends, you know, wish you, you know, happy birthday. That's, you know, one of the things I'll call it or, you know, happy mm-hmm. milestones or reversary. You know, I got a lot of positive feedback from the community, which was really amazing. Um, but then, you know, the next day comes and it's over. And so you just kind of adjust to, all right, well, this is year seven. It's not really any different <laughs> than year six, you know, same thing as a birthday. Um, and really where mm-hmm. I got all of this kind of concept, I was listening to a podcast on NPR and the psychologist who had written a book about it was basically, you know, how can we a find more joy in those moments and make them last longer Mm -hmm. um and b how can we enjoy the process of getting to our goals more that way we're not so fixated on the end result because to her point of the theory it's never going to you know be all it's built up to be unfortunately we're always going to be disappointed by the big expectation of whatever it is that we're going for, because, and maybe as, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a clinician, you can explain that side of it. Um, It's kind of just the idea. We always make things, I think, bigger in our minds, whether it's negative or positive. And then the actual event occurs and it kind of leads to um, disappointment or not, Mm -hmm. not always disappointment but it's just never, I think, all it's cracked up to be. So kind of the point that she was making and the point that I think I wanted to talk about today was how do we do that? Like, how do we make happiness last? How do we make those happy, joyous moments more important, more relevant? It's funny because, yeah, well, So I have like a bunch of thoughts when you're talking about this, but I think there's a couple things that like came to mind. The first one being that we tend to see happiness as a destination and versus a feeling state. Mm -hmm. So we make our happiness this like bright and shiny thing that you attain it. And then you like, it just, you know, forever exists in your life, but the thing is, unfortunately with like life, you know, there's peaks and valleys. There are things that happen that are just part of life, like losing loved ones, relationships ending, people getting sick. Like, I mean, if anything, this pandemic has shown us is that there's so much beyond our control. And while, you know, we love to feel good and to have moments of joy, um, happiness is like a feel it's a feeling state it's not like it's a feeling state and it can be fleeting and I think if we look at it not in in not necessarily a bad way but look at it as a feeling state something to be experienced like on big occasions or like when you're with loved ones or during even more mundane situations versus something that's attained and something that you work towards achieve and then you just have it 
I think the letdown is a little less because then you're like, okay, well, like, I know I can experience happiness. These parts of my life I'm content with. These are moments that I, you know, experience joy versus like, I think when we ask one another, or ask people like, are you happy? That's just so loaded because yeah. like you could have so many things in your life that you appreciate and value and that bring you joy and also have lost a parent or went through a breakup or lost a job or financially are struggling. Right. So like, I think there's just this big, like, and I mean, I think in this country, um, you know, I mean, pursuit of happiness, right. Is in the actual declaration of independence. Right. And so isn't, is that the constitution, not declaration? Oh my gosh. Constitution, right? It's in an important document. <laughs> it's in an important, I'm not a historian, obviously, but like <laughs> that's what this country is built on and no other countries. I don't think I actually talked to someone about this recently is, is built on that. Like one, like belief that we, you know, this or pursuit. And I think it's interesting because I think it's important to experience happiness, but I think if we get caught up in that, then it really is limiting because it's just not, it's not ever going to be attainable because that's just not how life works. So that was my first thought. Like, I just feel like we're in this culture. That's like, that's kind of creating this, this, I don't know, this conversation of how to, you know, how to achieve how to pursue and attain happiness versus like, how do we just be content and present and grateful with what we have? Um, because like you said, like, I think there's just a letdown, um, because of this idea we have of what it means to be happy, but just like, again, like happy, just like happiness is a feeling state. So is sadness and, and feeling fearful and, um, experiencing disappointment. So it's fleeting. It'll come, it'll go, but it'll always like return. And so if we just kind of are more, it's kind of that mindfulness practice where we acknowledge moments that we're happy, um, not holding on to it or like having all these expectations about it, but, but able to be present during those moments of happiness. That was my first thought. Um, when you mentioned that, because I do think we just have this weird understanding of what it means to be happy and that it's something that could be just attained. And, you know, yeah, like you said, like once you attain, you attain this amount of success or hit these life milestones, then, then you'll be happy. I also think the problem with that is that you're making your, essentially your, your life is contingent on these milestones and these outcomes versus the process and just everyday experiences. So you're discounting all those other experiences that could be really positive or things that you could be grateful for because your happiness is made contingent or conditional on these, you know, outcomes and that's not great either because then like there are all these moments you're missing out on like you know like and I've talked about this but like walking my dog brings me joy and like if I were to be like well I'm never going to be happy till a b or c happens and I would just really stuck on that I couldn't be present when I do those walks or when I'm with my friends or with my family like I, I if I was so focused and I'm not saying I'm perfect like right like I have uh, I have goals and, um, there are things I want to achieve and work towards. And I think that's great for us to keep our brain going and to keep us motivated and driven and learning and growing. I think it's important to have goals and important to look forward at the same time. 
we need that balance and to be present and to have these other moments where we're not just focused on the outcome, but we're enjoying the process too. Cause you mentioned like grad school or like education. Oh my God. So many people are just trying to graduate and trying to like get straight A's. They're not actually learning. Like I, gosh, so many kids in high school now are like, just so focused on, I mean, I was that way too. Like you're just focused on getting straight A's, getting a four point, whatever, and going to college that you don't, you barely have time to enjoy sometimes some of those like things that are most important during your adolescence or part of high school experience. Right. Like, so I don't know. There's a very loaded topic. I could talk about it for days. No, it, it's, it is really just relevant. And I think especially for our listeners who are going through like sober curiosity or just early sobriety or even any stage, really, Mm -hmm. you have an expectation that like, I'm going to stop drinking and everything's just going to be better. Mm -hmm. And it's a fallacy Um, because the way that I kind of put it metaphorically is getting sober or quitting drinking is like calling the Uber and the Uber arrives. Now you still got to get in the Uber and you got to get to the destination, which is whatever, right? Like healing, recovering, mm-hmm. working on your trauma, et cetera. There's still a destination to be had, but you made the first move, which is the hardest mm-hmm. move, which is calling. Right. So I, I think people have this idea. I'm going to be happy, right? Whatever that means. Yeah. When I stop drinking or when I stop when I break up with so-and-so or when I, like you said, when I do yeah. this, when I get my graduate degree, I'll finally, like the when, we call it the when then, like <laughs> when uh, yeah, this happens yeah. then. Yeah, exactly. And I, and then we set ourselves up not only for disappointment, but I think also then we have added anxiety for the future because all of a sudden we've given ourselves mm-hmm. this kind of another goal, right? Milestone, which are not necessarily negative things, but we turn them into something unnecessarily stressful. And it, the pursuit of happiness, right? Reminds me of the, the Kid Cudi song. Um, <laughs> and it, it, and another historical, <laughs> yeah, another historical, doctrine. Um, <laughs> if you're a millennial, it was a great song. Um, but I think as anybody who struggles with mental health or just any, really any person, you kind of feel that way. Like you wake up and it is a, it's a fuck. Like, I, I don't even know how to word it because it's so complex, but well, it reminds it, me of this. Yeah. No, go ahead. Reminds you of what? It just reminds me of, um, <laughs> yes, the song, but also, um, this little meme that I, I think is pretty popular on social media, but it's just like these little cartoon figurines and one has a jar and the other one is like, um, and it's like labeled like happiness. And then someone was like, oh, where did you find that? And the other little person is like, oh, I made it myself. So cute. And it's really cute and it's really simple, but I think it goes back to your point. Like, happiness is not to be found like you you can find it but it's kind of way more within exactly it's external 
and anything external you have no control over. It could make you happy for, you know, a couple minutes. It could make you happy for a couple of weeks. You don't know. But when you're, I think going back to basics and I was looking at one of my friends Instagrams yesterday and she got, she's gotten back into like roller skating <laughs> recently. I love that. And she was, she, yeah. She was saying, you know, she's found joy, um, in going back to childhood things. And mm-hmm. I found something similar when I started getting back into just like coloring, um, and doodling mm-hmm. or playing, I was playing for a long time. I was playing Farmville on my phone. Uh, (laughs) I remember like playing that on my computer in high school like sorry guys I gotta go water my crops gotta go home on my (laughs) desktop um but it you know it it was funny but to me what was so special about it is this lack of stimulation that I now need right like I can be satisfied like we're not I think once again happiness right it's a state you, you search for it, it comes and goes, the universe gives you ebbs and flows. Right. And so Mm -hmm. for me, what I've learned is I just want to be content. I want to be neutral. Like if I have neutral days, those are to me, those are good. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not about, I need to wake up and be joyous and carefree. Um, you know, it's a little extreme. I think it's more about how can you find neutrality to where you're not suffering or where you're not overcome with panic or anxiety or depression, you know, whatever it is that ails you. And then finding in those small moments, right. That first cup of coffee in the morning Mm -hmm. or watering your plants or taking your dog for a walk. Like you said, you know, how do you Mm -hmm. find time in your day to ground yourself and to create 10 minutes of joy, right? to to move forward and continue to to be content because I found and it took me a long time in recovery to to figure out that that's kind of I feel like that's like the secret is really it's not about like how can I make myself super happy today well I'm you know I'll go shopping I'll spend a ton of money you know like I know the answer (laughs) but it's once again it's I'm not going to feel great about it forever. Right. And then I'm going to be poorer and, you know, there's other things that come with it. And that's (laughs) like a dopamine, right. And, but that's like the dopamine, right. So I think we like, we get really confused with like that dopamine, dopamine hit and that high versus like actual, like feeling content and experience joy. Cause those are two different things. And I, I mean, I'm guilty. I mean, I'm not in recovery. Like, again, I'm not a big drinker. I'm not, you know, like, but I'm yeah. not in recovery, but I, I absolutely get buying something new for yourself. Like it's exciting, but then you're like, there's like a little bit of like, a, okay, now what? Like, okay, I got this cute shirt. Like, okay, great. Like now I'm down, like, you know, however much money that I could have like put away in savings. And then there's like, yeah. so I, and something you brought up and I think this might be important to mention and then, cause I just want to, before I forget, I lose my train of thought all the time, but I think for folks that are in recovery, that have days, whether they have lapsed or if they, or just like, or for someone with struggling with their mental health, if they have days where then they're feeling depressed after like months of feeling like relatively stable and 
they've been able to manage their, their mood or yeah, folks who haven't had bad anxiety and then have a panic attack. And I see this a lot with clients that there's like self-loathing for feeling any feeling or having any moment of like weakness or vulnerability or like mistakes or not mistakes, but like, you know what I mean? Choices that they're not proud of or like that they have deemed as bad. And it's funny because I always have to be like, okay, but you're not in the same state you were when we first started working. Like, yeah, you experienced depression, but that's to be expected, right? Like you found ways to manage it so that even if you've had like a day or two where it's been tough, like you push yourself to get out of bed, right? And even it, like it's the depressive episodes are less frequent because you've found ways to cope and medication or things to help you manage it. Or same thing with like, I've had clients with substance, um, even just cravings are so much guilt and shame for that. And I'm like, okay, but look at how you, well, AF, AF they've used, we talk about like, okay, but compared to how you were like six months ago, you're, yeah, you're realizing that didn't serve you. And then you've chosen other routes after you've used and that's okay. And, and, or again, the guilt of the craving, I'm like, okay, but now you've used like, so you've, you've, yes, you've had that craving. That makes sense. That's something you've used for years. So like, but the, the fact is you have this self-awareness now, like that's, that's a, a success and that's a feat. And so, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not, a, oh God, I'm not like the, you know, toxic positivity because yeah. I'm far from it. I, cause I, I do find that to be incredibly, uh, it just, not, it's not, it's not realistic. Right. But totally. I think we don't give ourselves enough credit, enough credit. And then we, we tend to label these behaviors or these, these patterns as good or bad. And then that means that I'm bad. And then I can't be happy or that I'm not allowed to experience happiness. And it's like this whole spiral that we go down and it's real, that, that to me is so, and I've been there. Like, I'm not saying I haven't been there. I've been there like to get it. But I think if we reframe it right to like, okay, I'm human. Like you said, the ebbs and flows that the universe gives us, the moments that we struggle, the losses that we'll experience, like to feel feelings that aren't just happy and joy is okay. And we'll notice that those feelings will actually be less difficult to manage and that they will be more capable of going through them versus fighting them. So that's something I wanted to share too, because I love the soberish community you're creating because it creates that space for the like, yes. And, and I don't think we, we have enough of that in this world. We're very binary. And I think we need more of that, that gray area, because I do think that's hindering us from being happy because we're not allowing ourselves to be in that gray space. Yeah. I mean, when I think about and why I say six years of recovery rather than like six years of sobriety or six years of being alcohol free, because it was not consecutive time. I think I've drank mm-hmm. six or seven times in six years, but back to your point, right. And back to where I was able to really focus on, um, you know, Carol Dweck's growth mindset and, mm-hmm. um, getting away from the cognitive distortion of the black and white thinking as a recovering perfectionist, I'm looking mm-hmm. at it like, okay, so out of like the 2,100 days, of the past six years, this is how many times I've drank compared to this, you know, this, the six years between, you know, when I was 16 and 22, which would have been the complete opposite. Maybe is I didn't drink for six days, (laughs) like, 
Um, <laughs> and the rest I did drink or use. So to me, it's kind of like, you know, if, if this were a percentage or a grade right on a right. test, it would still be an A, probably still be an A plus. So I'm going to take it like, sh- yeah. so, so the fuck what? I didn't get a hundred percent, but <laughs> I also, and this is, I know it's not everybody's experience. I know some people do need complete abstinence and, you know, everybody's journey is different, but mm-hmm. I think giving myself permission to drink on occasions or forgiving myself for going overboard and slipping really allowed me to just solidify my foundation for my recovery, which reminds me of why I don't drink reminds me of why I chose, you know, to be sober in the first place. Um, I think a lot of people need that because sometimes you get sober and then you still have these thoughts kind of in the back of your mind right of -hmm. like well what if or will I one day and I think like with anything else it can be harmful to completely shut yourself off to this idea of you never get to do this again you never get to you know talk to this person again like same I think with you know when you're in a kind of toxic relationship but Mm -hmm. if you can get further away from it Mm -hmm. And occasionally, let's say, same thing with, you know, I use the metaphor of, let's say you hit up your ex, who's not great for you, right? And you haven't talked in six months, and they come over and you hang out, whatever, and they leave and you're like, all right, well, that was not that great. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I remember them being better. I remember them being better looking. I remember feeling different about being in their presence. And Mm -hmm. maybe your friends give you shit or whatever, but then for you, it's like a learning moment of like, Mm -hmm. all right, well, there's this kind of layer of romanticization that gets Mm -hmm. peeled off permanently. Mm -hmm. And for me, sometimes I need a reminder and that's Mm -hmm. not to say I should go and drink, right. Just to remind myself of why I don't drink, Mm -hmm. but for me, and, and this goes for anything with, you know, my many different comorbid things going on. Um, I, I don't find it's helpful for me to completely see things through a binary lens. Like you said, it just, for me, it sets me up for failure because the moment I slip or the moment I text the person or the moment I you know, eat a piece of chocolate cake or or do something that's outside of the the lens of what I've set myself up for. It sets me up for either a bigger slip or this huge like mental breakdown of like self-criticism and self-hate and possibly Mm -hmm. self-harm. And it's just so not, that's so much more unhealthy to me than this new outlook that I'm, I'm trying to get people, you know, that's, that's the outlook that a thousand hours dry I had that was different that I got called. Like I'm making, remember like the first time I got like, hate was like, somebody was like, you're making recovery too casual. I was like, maybe it needs to be a little bit casual because there are casual fucking people with alcohol <laughs> problems. Not everybody right. is a diehard right. addict, like myself, like, and, and right. the thing is too, it's funny because people assume that 
oh, well, you must have been like a gray area drinker because this is kind of this, you know, this movement is kind of for the in-betweeners, but it's for everybody. And no, I wasn't. I was like a a diehard drug addict, alcoholic. Like I had to go to detox. It was not fun. But what I recognized was there's a place for me and that's called the 12-step program, you know? And it worked for me in the beginning and then it didn't. Um, and there will always be a place for people of extremes, but there has not been a space made for people in, in the gray area, people who don't want to identify, except And if that's going to save lives, why the fuck not? Honestly, that's the part where I really struggled as someone who's not in recovery. I'm like, if this person can find a community or find a way that's going to be healthier in the long term, right? That doesn't include like complete abstinence or like a different, like it's a different lens or ways of looking at recovery. Why not? Because otherwise they are like the alternative is then just honestly, it could be through overdose. So why not create a space that allows for just human human experience. I just exactly. have a hard time with, and I think, you know, I think for a lot of folks that are in 12 step or who have had, um, family members or partners in recovery and, and it's been de- devastating on their relationships and the family and whatever I, I hear, I, and they, it works for them. We're not, again, like, it's not about this. This is not okay. 12 steps not okay. But I think allowing for other people to make choices and to find what works for them like, I, I just think if it's a matter of life or death, like that's the harm reduction model. We're going to choose the, the, the option that works for you and that keeps you healthy and safe versus exactly. not the, and versus shame you away from going to a meeting sometimes. Cause some people just won't go back. And I've had clients that won't go back. And oh, I, yeah. I've and had that friends hurt, that have died yeah. because they, they can't, they didn't go, they didn't want to go back. I mean, who the fuck wants to go back after Right. Like I, I think of one person who I was in treatment with and he was doing really well and he had like two years and he was like a manager to sober living and had like a bunch of sponsees and then he went out and it's like everything got taken away from him and it's such a punishment mm-hmm. model and then like I still think he's out if he's even alive mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um and I've had a lot of friends die because of the this extreme model and so and it reminds me and it, it made me really emotional yesterday on the soberish page, um, someone had commented and was like, you know, if something like this were around earlier, I, I think my mom would still be alive. Uh, and yeah. it made me really emotional because that's how I feel about my own recovery and, and the evolution it's taken to, um, and I, I think a lot of people, because A, not everybody wants to get absent. And I think that's what people need to understand is like, not every addict, not everybody wants or is ready to, to be fully recovered. So sometimes you need mm-hmm. to make that safe space for them to figure it out on their own. And like you said, just a, a place to buy, like for me, I'm all about like, we need places for clean needles. We need places mm-hmm. to- I was just going to say that too. Yeah. You know, yep. um, and- and so many people look at it as, oh, well, you know, that's just you're like enabling. Them enabling. It's like, no, yeah. first of all, like if you, if you're an addict, then you should know 
if I want to get fucking high, I'm going to get fucking high. Like I, but would you rather not allow me a place to, you know, go get my drugs checked and find out that there's fentanyl in it and then I don't overdose and die or just like, let me roll the dice and I don't want to die. Obviously I'm hurting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using for a reason, but Mm -hmm. I think just having these places more available, like, you know, Canada is, is doing it. And I think it's so, so rad. Mm -hmm. It's just saying, Hey, you know what? Like we're destigmatizing this a little. We want, we want you to know that people give a shit about you Mm -hmm. and we don't die. And I think that yeah. even just that is enough sometimes to get people to go, you know what? I don't want to live like this because who the fuck wants to live like that? Nobody. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've known too many addicts and being an addict myself, <laughs> nobody is satisfied and happy living like that. It's a survival no. mechanism at that point. And so. Absolutely. It, yeah, it, it's just, it's such a hard subject and, but I don't, I don't mind being that person that you know, has those hard conversations or that pisses off people because you know what, I've been on both sides and it's a matter of ego, which is something that when I was in 12 steps, and like you said, this is not about bashing traditional programs because 12 steps saves a lot of lives as well. And that's Mm -hmm. where I got my sobriety foundation and I'll forever be grateful. And I still send people there if Mm -hmm. I think the program will work for them. The difference being that you know, this is a unique spectrum disorder, like whether it's drugs or alcohol. So as each person is unique, their treatment should be and the way that it's handled Mm -hmm. should be. So saying, okay, well, there's really only one, one option for treatment. Here it is for, you know, a million different kinds of people and the way that they use and the reasons that they use and the factors that contribute, it just makes no sense at all. And so opening up yeah. to this idea of, and I used to be super close-minded about it too. I mean, you can look back at like my Jubilee media which now has like millions of fucking views on YouTube. So I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's <laughs> going to bring this up one day. And I was like super <laughs> against anything recreational. I was like, I'm against recreational drinking, against recreational marijuana use, you know, et cetera. Um, that was your learning curve though. Like, or what you learned you needed, like you all, you we all have to go through it and find what works for us. And at the time that was what worked for you, which is fine. Totally. Exactly. And I think just, I always tell people like, leave a door open, like leave the door open for possibility for your, for your journey to evolve, because what's going to help you you know, the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, this mm-hmm. year, whatever may not be the same thing. I mean, my recovery has changed so much in the past six years because I've mm-hmm. changed so much in the past six yeah. years. I've become more open-minded to things and kind of going back to that, that ego, which is the whole point of traditional recovery is removal of the ego because the ego is what gets us into addiction, our selfishness, yeah. me, me, me. Um, so the idea that anybody else is worried about what other people are doing is the exact opposite of that. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Why are you mm -hmm. worried about what other people are doing? It's not affecting your recovery. If it's not affecting you directly, it's Mm -hmm. really, and this is a a very traditional saying, which is keep your side of the street clean. Don't fucking worry about what other people are doing. And it's totally true. 
And I get why people are a little bit freaked out because I thought the same way too, which is like, you're giving people permission to relapse, but it's not. You're giving people permission to expand their minds. And if they want to figure out microdosing, if maybe mm-hmm. you know, marijuana maintenance would work better for them than taking right. medication, um, you know, there's a, a million different things, right? But well, and- okay. yeah, it just goes back to that obsession. And I think, which is the, the whole idea and what irks me is if you actually read the big book, which is, you know, the big book yeah. about Alex Anonymous, yeah. the, the first fucking sentence says, we who have recovered. <laughs> and yet I can't go into a meeting and say, hi, I'm Kayla. I'm a recovered alcoholic without getting nasty looks. So it's like, let's actually look at the literature and what it says. And Bill, who wrote it, he, after, after he wrote all of this, he literally went and like did a bunch of like psychedelics and stuff to, mm-hmm. to open up his mind and then went back to the program and, and to talk about it. And they were like, oh no, 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 we can't do that. It's like his own program shut him out and we're like, no, no, no. So it's, it's just the, the irony of it all and goes to show you, even the person who built this program, his own recovery journey literally evolved and people know about it and they're like "Mm, no I think we're just gonna leave that part out of the book and it's like that's a really fucking important part (laughs) but yeah let's just ignore it I mean I don't want we're not gonna get into politics but there's so many things like in these data documents right that you're like okay let's let's be flexible like this was written in you know whatever time period based on these circumstances like let's let's switch things up a little bit or at least allow for flexibility right and how we view these documents interpret them um so something I was thinking and I think we wanted to talk about this because acceptance and commitment therapy so you'll you'll hear it as ACT or ACT um that and I I incorporate it I I honestly identify myself as an eclectic therapist based on because based on who walks in my 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 room my therapy space, I'm going to adjust. So some people really love cognitive behavioral therapy and I will encourage it. We'll use that. And that will be their primary, like, like primary modality that that's helpful to them. A lot of people struggle with that. And I struggle with that personally. And I'm not, it's again, evidence-based. It works for a lot of folks. It also doesn't work for a lot of folks. So with acceptance and commitment therapy, the reason I love it is because it is that what works for you do that. And it is what is important to you do that because you're the whole concept is living authentically and following your own values and allowing yourself for that freedom and flexibility to have different emotions that whole mindfulness practice that is those are the core tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy and that's what I love about it is because it really I feel like is client-centered in the most possible way because we're not going to impose our own values onto the client. And for me, that helped me in my mental health, like journey and time in therapy was really focusing on what worked for me versus my friends versus what I learned in school, because I was able to dig, okay, what are my values and what are the things that I can find joy, happiness in, fulfillment, meaning? It's one of those, especially when I, in the, like a lot of the work I do and a lot of the stuff I write about, 
is about dating and like self-esteem and self-worth in my twenties. And it's because I was completely lost. And so I really was fixed on if I have a boyfriend or I'm in a relationship and have kids and I'm married, I will be happy or that will make me whole and complete. And so that was like my whole, like that was like my North star. Like this is what's going to guide me. And so I really had no solid sense of self. And my happiness again was contingent on like being in a relationship or partnership or, and it was so backwards and it really was the worst thing for me. But what really helped was connecting to the things that were important to me and worked for me. And I always say this to clients, like, you know, there are a lot of clients that will be like, I know I should probably go to the gym. Like that will probably like help. And I'm like, okay, but if you dread it and hate the gym, but exercise is helpful and you like exercise, like why not go for a walk? And so it's coming up with what feels good for you. What makes you feel fulfilled? What brings you joy and doing those things on a regular basis. And that includes like your recovery. Like that includes like the things that you need to do for your recovery. It's what is going to be helpful and supportive and liberating. And I think that we need to focus on that a lot. So that's why I brought up that because I just feel like it's so applicable and people can, can adjust it and, and create their own, I don't know, like pathway to success or happiness in whatever way that means, meaning that again, it's not the right, something you attain, but just how you can bring more joy into your life and feel more secure in yourself and your recovery or in your mental health journey by tuning into what you need to feel good and happy on a regular basis versus these accomplishments or these milestones. Right. And yeah, I don't know. We talked about a lot about it last time, kind of like what you do for your mental health, what I do for my mental health. And I think what it comes down to is not just what works, but also what, what, what brings us meaning and what fills us up and not in like a hedonistic way of like, you know, this amount of money in the bank or this accomplishment, but like every day, what are things that make us smile? What are things that make us laugh? What are things that provide relief from anxiety or can boost our mood and focusing on those things and incorporating those things on a regular basis versus like hitting these certain milestones, hitting these goals and then being like, okay, now what? Yeah. Cause that's, and that's generally how it feels like I think especially for those of us either currently still in perfectionism mode or recovering Mm -hmm. perfectionism, um, I'm like looking at my habit tracker right now and I haven't really been filling it out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And before it really would have fucking bothered me to like see these blank spaces, but I'm letting it go. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, well, it's just a fucking piece of paper. And the whole point of me doing it is to just kind of keep track and to make, to like get a little dopamine when I get to, you know, fill out my little bubble that I've done Mm -hmm. something. So I'm not going to allow it to do the opposite to me. Like I've created this specifically to make me feel better. I'm not going to give it the power to make me feel worse because I didn't Mm -hmm. do it, you know? And I think that goes for so many things or like, I look up, I have my, you know, visualization boards and my, my goals for 2020 on the, on the wall next to me and I'm looking at it and it's how much stuff has already changed to your point. Right. It's like, well, didn't think I would be, you know, getting separated at the beginning of this year. So that changed a bunch of my goals, you know, didn't think I was going to be leaving my job. Well, I kind of did, 
Um, <laughs> just didn't know yeah. when exactly. Right. Like, and so I'm looking and I'm like, all right, I got to shift. I got to pivot. And mm-hmm. rather than it, than it kind of this disabling me, like it would in the past to be like, oh fuck, like this is not how I plan things. You know, if, if I can't do X, Y, Z, or if this isn't on my timeline, then everything is ruined. And I know you and I were talking about that too. Like just mm-hmm. when we were talking the other day about like being of certain age and watching all of our friends like get married mm-hmm. and have babies. And you're like, all right, like, cool. Um, <laughs> where's my ring? Like not letting that reflect our worth by the absence of these things or maybe things that we're not, we're, we're not there or maybe we don't even want them. Like, right. Like exactly. certain things you're, yeah. Those become defining in our culture, I think, especially with social media. Oh yeah. And I was, I was deeply thinking about that, honestly, this morning, um, just as like, I, you know, just being a dog mom, getting up Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, getting up early when they need to go to the bathroom and, you know, I'm laying there and I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't think I'd want any more responsibility than what I have right now. Like truly Mm -hmm. our parents Mm -hmm. talk about how much like sleep deprivation they have. I'm like, mm-hmm. I do not well asleep deprived. Like me, <laughs> Kayla sleep deprived is a very like nasty bitch. So I'm just kind of, and I'm being realistic, right? It's like, yeah. what I want to be a parent or what are, what are the, for me, I think about obviously besides the, the right person and the right relationship, like what other things, what I need to be ready for that like what does that look like for me do I need a nanny or like a a night nurse and those are other things I think people like a whole other topic of like stigma especially in like westernized cultures of like okay like if if you're a mom and you do things and you get help then you're like doing it wrong I'm like I don't know guilt I grew up with nannies and like okay maybe I didn't try out great but now I'm okay um (laughs) but it didn't it didn't reflect my parents parenting they were just busy um you know and I think about like myself and like genuinely maybe this is a super privileged thing to say but like I have some girlfriends who have who had night nurses when they had their babies and it just allowed them obviously to like get sleep and then be a totally you know present parent and I'm like I feel like I'm the kind of person and I'm, I'm not saying everybody is, I'm just being completely honest with myself. I think mm-hmm. I might need something like that. And in order to get something like that, I need to have a certain amount of finances in my life. You know, there's, mm-hmm. so there's a building block. And what I've realized is, although yes, I feel a little bit of left out, right. Of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is just that I think it's fear of missing out on something, not necessarily, mm-hmm. oh, this is going to make me happy, right? Like you said, or kind of going mm-hmm. back to our whole point is like, yes, if I have a family and if I have kids and if I'm a mom, I'm going to be super fulfilled and that's going to make me happy. I think for me, that there those come with contingencies. So mm-hmm. I have to make sure that I'm in that place with those contingencies before I can even consider. And I, I think it just opens up a conversation for, for women specifically in general and going like, well, what do you really want? Mm -hmm. And 
I want to add this because I think this is something that I like had a really hard time in my personal life, like negotiating. And also with clients, I've, I've seen this a lot is like, so you can want kids and that's important. It's like that. It's not that that can't happen or that you shouldn't like that shouldn't be on in your plans. Like that's absolutely yes. totally okay. If that's a, if you want to be a parent or a mom or have a family and that's an, a value of yours, absolutely. That's still like on your radar, but you don't want to forbid yourself from experiencing, like having life experiencing from experiencing joy from all the things until that happens. And I think that's where my twenties, where I was really struggling, where like, I really had a hard time being like, okay, this is something I want. Also, before that happens, I'm going to continue living my life and having things that make me feel good about myself and where I'm at and give me meaning because you can't plan that all the time. You can't plan yeah. when and when you're going to have kids, who you're going to have kids with, or when you're going to get this job or, you know what I mean? Like you can't plan, you can have these goals, you can work towards them. But if you're, if kind of now we're just kind of going back to the beginning, but this is like, I think a really great, like kind of way to like wrap it up is like this ability of not focusing only on the outcome, but also the process and being present during that process. Oh yeah. And being okay to shift because I mean, like we mm -hmm. talked about before I was in a long-term relationship. We were talking about, we had like already picked out a name of what we knew we wanted to name our first daughter. You know, we mm -hmm. had like a three to five year trajectory of like buying a house, getting married, mm -hmm. you know, having our first kid. And so it's like, you can still even be on that path and then the yeah. path ends. And you're like, just kidding. So it, and it, you know, it, it's okay. It can, you can let it, you know, you can, you can grieve it and, and move forward, but it doesn't have to, like you said, uh, it doesn't have to hinder your desire for that. I can still want all those things, but just with someone new. And I just yeah. have to kind of create a new pathway for myself that allows me to be with somebody that's more aligned with my values and my priorities. And that still wants those things. And, and in the meantime, still have yeah. meaning in your life. Like you're doing a lot of work that brings you meaning, right? Like I, and doing exactly. things every day that, yeah. And I think that's like the key is like life is going to throw you lots of curveballs and going to be full of a lot of shit. And it's just oh, in the meantime, what can you do to like be living authentically and honoring the values, even when you're going through it. And we're not saying just power through it and like, you know, don't have your moments or days where you're just crying. Cause we all need those, but yes, <laughs> but making it a point to live a meaningful life, even between those milestones or those, those big moments. Thank you for listening to another episode of Generation Dry, a podcast for the sober and sober curious. If you like what you've been listening to, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. For more information about this episode, you can check out the description and for more techniques and tips, make sure to follow us on Instagram at generationdrypod. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week.